I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Louis Friedberg. Louis Friedberg is a senior reporter and advisor to California Watch, a nonprofit journalism venture based at the Center for Investigative Reporting. Prior to joining California Watch, he worked at the San Francisco Chronicle as a columnist, editorial board member, Washington correspondent, and education reporter. He has also been a senior editor at Pacific News Service, where he established and directed Pacific Youth Press. He was the founder and director of Youth News in Oakland, California, which trained high school students as radio news reporters. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Lewis Friedberg. Well, thank you and good evening. I, I want to welcome you all to this uh, very important discussion. Uh, as you know, um, the issue of teacher evaluations and the issue of value-added methodology has become a controversial local, state, and national issue. And really, LA is kind of at ground zero of this whole debate. So um, what the panelists tonight have to say and your participation later, I think, are very important in terms of informing not only what happens in Los Angeles, but in California and the rest of the country. And uh, as they say, the whole world is watching what you do here. I think we uh, need to acknowledge up front that there are different sides to this issue, and I'm looking forward to having an informed and rational discussion. And of course, we won't have time to go into all the complexities of this issue, uh, but hopefully this will be a good starting point for discussion. So let me just introduce uh, the panel uh, to you. Um, on my right is Karen Hunter Court. She's the Director of Research of Center X, uh, the home of UCLA's professional credentialing and advancement programs for teachers and education leaders. She's also Director of Research for the UCLA Community School, which is a new K 12 small public school that uh, opened last fall within LAUSD. She was also the Assistant Director of Research for UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and access. Her research, teaching, and writing focus on the creation of democratic small schools as well as the struggle to recruit and retain good urban teachers. Next to her is Oscar Cruz. Uh, Oscar is the Vice President to Families in Schools, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to involve parents and communities in their children's education. He previously served as Senior Program Manager at the Center for Civic Education, where he managed an international network of civil society organizations, school districts, universities, and foundations working to implement civic engagement programs for students and youth in the United States and Latin America. And uh, to his right is uh, John Deasy, who serves as uh, Deputy Superintendent for, the, uh, for LAUSD. Prior to joining uh, LA Unified, uh, Dr. Deasy served as the Deputy Director of Education at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He has previously served as Superintendent of the Prince George's County uh, Maryland Public Schools, where he launched a pay-for-performance plan that made the district a national leader in efforts to reward teachers for gains in student achievement. Uh, he has been superintendent of the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District and also has been a Broad Fellow, an Annenberg Fellow, and a State Superintendent uh, of the Year. And I think what unites all the panelists is that they care passionately about kids, they care passionately about schools, and about teaching. So uh, what I'd like to do is um, start with Dr. DC to kind of bring us up to speed. <laughs> Where do things stand now in terms of uh, the evaluation process and the value-added uh, controversy that was triggered by the LA Times series? I know there's been a lot of discussion and debate since then. Things are great. Everybody is on board. There is, com <laughs> <laughs> there is complete harmony in the ranks of UTLA and, yeah. and uh, the district. Um, actually, what's actually um, probably the most honest description of that is um, there's been very thoughtful and civil conversation um, with our teachers and our teacher leaders and our administrators and our administrative leaders and us. Uh, so where do we stand? Um, we've um, moved uh, on the recommendations of the Teacher Effectiveness Task Force, for which um, we have brought into Educator Effectiveness Task Force, because this is going to be about administrators as well. 
And we have set up um, three working groups. One working group is designing um, a, um, an improved and robust performance evaluation system for teachers and administrators. And that is requiring the construction of a framework for teaching. And teachers have begun the process along with the district um, in constructing that framework. A second group um, is helping us consider the measures of teacher effectiveness. We believe in a multiple measure approach um, and a multiple indicator approach and value added, um, which we don't call value added. We call it academic growth over time because it's a far better depiction of the narrow slice, for example, that the Times used um, is inside of that work group. And then lastly, um, there's a part of this work which um, portions of this have to be appropriately negotiated um, with our labor partners and there's negotiations around that piece. We will um, endeavor to have at the board's direction a framework for teaching and learning, um, a, a instrument for evaluation, a process, a framework for evaluation, and a professional development plan by the close of this school year, and look for pilots in the upcoming school year. We are producing an academic growth over time metric for schools that is nearly complete and we'll provide that to schools for their own growth and improvement um, within the next three months. And we will work on an individual uh, academic growth over time measure for teachers where we can do that and provide that confidentially to teachers so they can begin um, to think about the implications of that by the close of the school year. So to avoid glazed eyes and so on now, when you say academic uh, growth metric, well, what, what do you mean by that? Value added. And, 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 and specifically, specifically, what would you be doing that is different from what the LA Times did? And so that, I don't want to, yeah. um, A, um, this is not um, a debate about whether they had or used the right formula or not. Uh, I, I would argue that uh, first it will be a collaboratively um, developed metric. How it's used is a different issue. Constructing it is what I'm talking about. And the indicators that you account for to try to take a look at how John, my own um, self, did over a number of years and what one would expect me to do in fifth grade as a result of my performance in second, third, and fourth, and then how do I do in that, we believe have to take in factors of um, all the impact factors that um, affect student um, achievement over time and account for those meaning um, indicators of impact like um, uh, poverty or language facility, um, ethnicity. Um, we actually think that there are impact factors in terms of uh, size of school that need to be included um, in a measure like that. Understanding the stability of the testing system that one uses to use around this, and um, that is what we will be taking a look at. But test scores of the students are part of that. They're the center of it. They're the center of it. Correct. For what proportion? Did, did, uh, do I, is it 30%? Is that, is that where, where things stand now? So I think the question you're asking is then once we create this measure, what portion of that measure do we use for a teacher's evaluation? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That in LA is a collaborative decision with our labor partners and with our administrators as well. We don't have an answer on that piece. The board has indicated that they would prefer to see uh, the percentage of all of those factors value added be 30% of it. The other factors at the moment are um, the actual clinical evaluation takes place in the classroom. Um, how parents provide us input in constructed surveys about the quality, parent, guardian, uh, parenting adults, about the quality of the classroom experience, the school experience, et cetera. How students provide us input, so student-parent surveys. How a teacher contributes to the learning environment of that school. How do I actually help my colleague get better um, around that piece and value added? At the end of the day, um, we can, uh, in California, you can construct what you would like, but you bargain impact and how it would be used. We have no intention of doing anything but honoring um, that piece around that. If you want to ask me my opinion about what it should be, that can only be an opinion. It's not a district position. But go ahead. Yeah. Opinion. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that was very clever. Um, I, 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 I've said from the very beginning um, it should be a fractional measure. Um, fractional meaning it should by no means be the majority measure, and it should be by no means not a measure. 
um, and we can talk later about why um, I would hold that opinion and what research it would be based on. <clears throat> I don't think we know what the correct number is. And to put that out there and say, well, of course it should be 28% or of course it should be 35%. It needs to hold a place of responsible value. 1% is not a responsible value. 99%, I believe, is also an irresponsible value, given that its science is so young and that at the moment it's imperfect, just like classroom observations are imperfect around that. And so we have a whole heck of a lot more training on how to do a good clinical observation of a teacher and feedback. That should, in my opinion, be the greatest weight of this metric. Let me ask uh, Oscar Cruz, um, from your perspective as, as an advocate, um, what role should, should uh, test scores uh, play in, in the evaluation of teachers? I think I could um, answer it in a couple of ways. I think that, I think to me it's important to step back and say why are we even here today talking about value added, right? Because we understand that there's certain academic outcomes that we know are not at the level where we want them as a community and as a district to be. So if we know what the, what's important is the performance and the outcomes of the students' graduation, reading at grade level, having math at grade level, then we should then be looking at those same indicators to tell us what is that we should evaluate who is teaching our kids. So uh, I, I personally believe, again, as an individual, not as talking for families and schools, I would say that it has to be a significant, I wouldn't say more than 50%, but it has to be a core component of what we're doing in order to evaluate whether the kids are um, you know, getting a quality education. Uh, I think that on a day-to-day -day basis when we're talking with, when I work with parents and we're working with a mostly low-income community parents, they're already talking about this. It's not about value added. They're talking about it in their own terms about quality teachers. But most of the information or the way they talk about it is in anecdotal information. It is based on hearsay is, you know, do you know that person? Do you know that teacher that did that to my kid? Uh, you know what? That's not a good teacher. That teacher gives to, uh, you know, I don't know, is treating my kid in a different way. I personally believe that if we truly understand parent engagement in a way where parents are the core decision makers in their child's education, they have to have access to as many sources of information to make informed decisions. And I, 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 I wish there would be something else that we can say, look, this is a perfect way to, to, under, to evaluate how teachers are teaching uh, the students, but test scores are important. Uh, the, this is a high, you know, a high stakes environment for kids. If they don't pass a certain test or if they don't have a score in this grade level, their futures are completely, you know, dependent on that. And for us to then say, well, yes, it's going to affect those kids and, and low income communities, communities of colors are the ones that are being affected by this high stakes environment. <coughs> and then we go back and say, no, you know what, it's really for teachers, we really shouldn't even look at, uh, at the you know at the outcomes, I really think at the end of the day, parents need to have as much information to to make decisions. I we always talk about it internally that um, we want low income communities to behave like uh, middle class and upper class uh, uh, communities where they're making choices all the time. If they don't like the school, they grab you know they they move to another community. Or if they don't, if they like this, uh, the school, the, that public school system, they put it in a private school system. To us, it's very important the notion that families have to be involved in making those decisions for their kids. And the more information we provide to them and we give them, I think it's, it's going to lead uh, to better results. Let me ask you, Karen, and to courts, do you think that is the kind of information that parents should have? How, how they're linking the test scores of the students to... Uh, that particular teacher? The short answer would be no. I, I really uh, think that what has gone on so far has been very damaging to us as a city and to us as a school, school system. I don't disagree at all that parents need good information. And your point, Oscar, about having multiple um, sources of evidence is exactly uh, the position I take and share with John as well. And the district should be paying attention. What they haven't been able to do is pay attention to the multiple part because it's all been about test scores. Um, so from my perspective as a researcher, I want to look at what those multiple measures are. I want 
want to be very responsible about the kinds of assessment properties they have, the measurement error associated with all of them, because every measurement uh, has an error. Uh, Value-added have errors in them, and that's some of the critique people have been reading about what's wrong with those scores. Um, but observations have lots of error too. You walk in, it might be Monday, someone's sick, something's going on, you're not seeing what you should really be seeing in that classroom. Or you might be surveying teachers and they may not be answering the questions you think that, you know, they should be answering. So there's always error, and I think what we want to do is get as many very good assessments across the spectrum of complex, complex active teaching and then figure out um, really you know, clear, straightforward ways to engage parents in understanding and using that evidence, not just parents, teachers, schools, uh, society. I, I mean, I... Can I respectfully build on that for one second? I just want to make sure that the audience doesn't come away with the impression that we've been focused on test scores. Actually, LAUSD has never used test scores. Um, I would have to say it's never considered them whatsoever in terms of teacher evaluation. Um, so we haven't been focused on them at all about individual teachers um, uh, ever. Uh, the only way we evaluate teachers is through a process governed by a piece of state law called the Stull Act, where you are either acceptable or not. So there's not even any remote differentiation on, on that happens. So um, I think we've been focused on a set of newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the system, however, has certainly not had that conversation. I just wanted to ask you, though, what, what are some of the other things that you think should go into the evaluation? I mean, what, yeah, the, the what are some of the other measures? Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, I'll tell a few of them. One of my favorites is uh, right now we're piloting called the Instructional Quality Assessment. That's a tool developed by my colleagues at UCLA and some at Pittsburgh that takes and uh, you ask a teacher, give me a representative assessment that you've given kids over the last couple of weeks. They put together the assessment, then they, they are asked questions. Why did you give this? What context? What did you expect kids to learn from this? And all sorts of wraparound questions contextualized in the assessment. And then they are asked to provide six samples of student work that was generated from the assessment. Uh, to low, low pieces of work, medium and high. And then the entire package gets scored by a set of teachers that have been trained um, to ensure the validity of the measure. So to me, that's a really nice example of a very solid assessment measure of what a student is experiencing in the classroom. And so that gets scored based on what is the academic rigor associated with the learning in this assignment. I mean, that's the day-to-day -day work of schooling. Right? That's what teachers do day in and day out. Uh, we give a test once a year in May, but we, every day we give kids assignments to do and, and we spend their time in our classroom doing hopefully productive things. Let's look and shine a light on it and see how productive it is. And I know this is still in process, uh, Dr. DC, but let me ask you in terms of what do you envisage in, uh, in terms of this process? What, what would the end result be? What kind of measure? I know, for example, in Washington, D.C., they have this score that, uh, you know, 100 to 400, and it's based on a lot of measures, including the test scores are a portion of it, and then if the teacher doesn't get 175, then they're fired, at least as I understand it. Is... Uh, what kind of measure would are you going are you gonna, you thinking about? Um, a quick editorial comment. So yeah. much has been um, talked about what happened in Washington D.C. I, I think really um, it's such an incredibly narrow picture, um, and, and absent the whole conversation about where was the professional development to support teachers over time to get to that piece. So I just um, I have to just add that piece for my own peace of mind um, around around the, the, that piece. Um, what do we envision? We would envision um, a robust accountability system uh, for the adults, no less than we hold students to. Um, uh, students are involved in very high stakes, robust accountability for their daily work, um, their annual work, with um, very significant stakes. We take, as a system, money off of everybody's kitchen table in the form of tax dollars, and we convert that to salaries and benefits, about 89% of that. Most of the people, by the way, can't afford to give us their tax dollars. And the quid pro quo is that we deliver a set of outcomes, which is that students um, are actually able to uh, graduate college workforce ready, 
are able to go to and through post-secondary education and are able to be uh, a participant um, in what we call this democracy, gainfully employed, having health care, living wage, et cetera. Um, at the moment, um, we are not achieving that in LAUSD. And in some cases, not remotely achieving that. Um, so one has to say, we look at a school where um, less than 1% of students in this school are proficient in mathematics, less than 1%, 3,000 students. Um, where 39% of those students graduate four years later. And everybody is at the top of their evaluation. The disconnect at the moment um, is glaringly problematic. So putting together a, an instrument that takes a look at how well are you pr preparing and planning to teach, how well you know your subject matter, how well you construct the act of assessment, how you test students, how well you teach, that is a majority component of what we should be able to take a look at. We should also try to understand how students do as a result of that teaching over time, not on a single test, but over time, over years, for example. That's what value-add is. I think there's a, there is still this notion that value-add is what happened to you in May. Not at all, not even close to that. Um, that's necessary for me to be a better teacher. And it's also necessary for us to have a sense as after all of the work, did anything happen as a result of that, um, that actually added um, the opportunity for students to demonstrate that they learned around this. And, and I've added the other ones too, uh, how, I how I contribute to my, my school's growth, what parents and students um, are able to, uh, to provide around that. Um, I, I think you're pushing for like where should that all fall out to. I, 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 um, I, I think I've said really clearly that I think that the majority, if you want percentages, more than 50% of, of the total metric. So are you an accomplished teacher? Are you um, a, uh, a master teacher? Are you a teacher who is um, approaching um, uh, the standard of sufficiency? Are you a teacher who is struggling? Are you a teacher who is showing no um, proficiency around these issues? If you just use something like that around that piece, in order to get to that, you need a, a determination. You're making a judgment. You're making a judgment as to how to provide professional development. You're making a judgment as to what the system has an obligation to, to support the teacher. You're making a judgment if the teacher should stay employed. You're making a judgment if the teacher should be advanced to be uh, a coach, um, career judgments. And the majority of that judgment call should be on how the teacher um, does the act of teaching. A piece of it should be, what are the results the students have as, as being in that classroom? Um, that's where I am. Let me ask, uh, like to get a quick sense from all of the panelists. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, one of the central issues that was raised is should this information be public? Uh, Oscar, you, you have said parents need that information. There's also a discussion, how public? You know, should it be in the newspaper or should it just be with parents going to the school and can ask for it? Right. Although I mean, that is public. I, I'm, not a parent. Yeah. I'm not a parent right now, but... I would like to know when I have, you know, hopefully I have kids, I would love to know that if I'm putting my kid in a public school system, it would be very informational for me to know what has been the trend in terms of the students and how have they grown uh, as they've gone through, you know, teacher in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I, it's very, you know, strange to me to think that I wouldn't want that information as a, as a parent, you know. So I, I feel that there has to be... It, that as accessibility and transparency about information if we truly are expecting parents to make the choice again. So I go back to that point uh, about um, choices. Uh, and the other thing about um, you know, this kind of different areas uh, on how parent engagement is being looked at in the new, or are they working in the new model? I know that they've been putting a lot of emphasis on um, surveys and uh, surveys from parents and teachers. And I think that's important, that's a good start. But if we truly understand parent engagement as a teaching strategy, as if I understand that if I engage parents, the, the, the outcomes of students are going to increase, why not also assess the practices that the, the parents, uh, the teachers are doing in the classroom or in the school to engage parents? And, and just as much as someone will come and see an observation of a teacher and see whether that, that teacher is being interactive, being hands-on, or being engaging with, with, with students, why not then look at parent engagement in the same way and say, well, 
That, how well is that parent engaging, you know, that teacher engaging the parent? Are they truly making an effort building a relationship? So I, I would add, add and we're working in, the, in that task mm-hmm. force as trying mm-hmm. to make that point, that is not, not solely the satisfactory surveys. Uh, a lot of parents tend to be very loyal to, to teachers and to schools, and a lot of those surveys sometimes come up very positive. But at the end of the day, for example, in the, in the school report card, the last school report card, only 17%, I believe, of parents responded to the survey. And 95% of them said that it was a welcoming environment. To me, that's great, but I ask myself, because the other 80, 82% or whatever it is didn't complete the survey, is that, is, are they saying that they're not feeling welcome? That's why they didn't complete the survey, right? <laughs> so in that sense, I, th- I think that we have to truly look at parent engagement in a much more... A complex way and not just in a in a survey uh, of feedback. Well, let, let me ask you, Karen. Well, what we're public? How public? How how much information should the public and parents are obviously? Well, it's public, a it's part a, of the public. Yeah, it's a really important question to grapple with. I mean, mm-hmm. we're public schools. We belong to the public. Um, but if we don't have, a, uh, as professionals, responsible ways to communicate our work, um, I feel like, you know, it, it, it's, it's not responsible to communicate um, the way the Times did. I can type in and find yeah. my teacher and go, uh-oh, I'm going to go to my principal and, and get, get upset. That's just not a professionally responsible process to me. Right. I think a, a responsible process, public process, would engage parents in understanding the life of the classroom and broadly the life of the school. I mean, as a parent, you sign up to join a school. Um, you're joining a community. You're hoping your child is there at the school I work in. We're a K-12 school on purpose because we want families to, to grow with us and we want them to stay and we want to get to know them. So if we have their child in a struggling teacher's classroom, we have a commitment to that family to listen to them, to help solve that problem. But, but it won't just be around the, the value-added scores of that particular struggling teacher. It will be a, a, a professionally responsible you know, act to try to engage them, solve the problems, figure out what we can do to support that teacher, or figure out another avenue for that teacher. So you've done, really, you've done very well. That's the most difficult question within the first 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I think this is probably the most difficult question to answer. Um, so, but I'm going to be very honest, um, obviously uh, very honest about this question. So I don't think an individual teacher is value. First of all, I think we should construct a, a well-done value-added score, and we should use it, as I said before. I do not believe that it should be public. And I want to explain why I don't think it should be public. Um, I think it is part of, I think it should be part of the consideration of a teacher's performance review. And as such, those items, in my opinion, are rightfully closed um, by law. Um, uh, however, I think, uh, so I, I believe that. I think parents should understand how we use it, what we use it for. I think parents should understand how we evaluate teachers, what goes into the evaluation of teachers, so that they have a trust that we are implementing a good performance review process around this. I don't get to see an individual pilot's record performance when I step on United Airlines. But I am assured, but I am assured um, that my safety is part of the passenger bill of rights around that piece. I, I also think um, differently about a school-wide score, and that's why we're constructing both. I think the public does get the right to see on how all of the teachers contribute to the growth of students, but not an individual teacher. I think that's between the employer and the employee. Um, I do feel differently about a school-wide score. So that's a difference of opinion, and uh, which I'm sure is, reflects what a lot of people feel. But I have to say that uh, John DC did put out a statement uh, after the suicide of a teacher that some people feel was linked to the uh, this rating that he got in the LA Times, and uh, it was a very, very powerful statement, uh, saying that that's not why the teacher, sh- how the teacher should be remembered. This apparently was a teacher that was highly regarded. Um, so, 
That appears to be the position of, of the district at this point. Uh, that is the position of the district. I, I, I want to make sure my comments were very clear on that point. That is the position of the district. I, I wouldn't even consider speaking about the remarkable teacher who's, who taught at um, Bermante Elementary School um, because um, I think people have rushed to link something for which they haven't a shred of evidence to link such things together. Um, not even the county coroner um, made such linkages. Um, I think um, uh, nor do we have the right to have such an opinion without meeting and talking with the family. What was very clear in that situation, however, <coughs> was um, the contributions the teacher made over time to the families, um, which even more deeply brought to my mind that those are very important pieces to consider um, when, when you make contributions to your school and your family. Ask a quick Response to now that we've had a little bit of a go around on this. Yeah, no, no. I think it's it, it's a very interesting. Still think idea. it should be public. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that let me qualify my statement to saying when I say public, I'm talking about the parent right. who has a child in in that particular school, and I'm not saying that uh, LAUSD should use the LA Times as a way to distribute that information, which when I'm referring to being public is if I have a child in that public school, I, I, I would, as a parent, would love to have that information. So that I would then agree that is not something that you would just, you know, you know just pay, you know, post on a, on a website and then call it public. Uh, there's all that component of the working with parents Right. If you're going to provide this information, just like the school report card that has been, you know, is being used, there has to be a lot of the back end work on, on trying to make families comfortable with understanding these instruments. What there's just just no use to having a, 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 a school report card that is issued with IPI scores and all of this information if the parents don't understand what those things are. So. In that sense, I do agree a lot that there has to be this other component with parent engagement. And at the end of the day, I think. Do schools see themselves as parent engagement being a respon their responsibility? And more and more we're finding that a lot of the schools don't see that, that they are saying it is the parent's fault, um, and you know, I, there's nothing we can do at home, and which we agree, by the way, we, 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 I have a colleague, Kathleen Mooney, who's here, and she always makes this point very clear, she says, you know, parent engagement is what schools do to engage the parents in the most effective way, and there's parent involvement, what the responsibilities of the parents, what they have to do at home and at school. So we do see that uh, we're not asking the, the teacher to go into the, into the classroom, I mean, into the home and be the, you know, the parents or the kids, but are they providing the most effective information in a clear manner, in a way that is engaging parents so the parents understand what are the expectations of having the child in that classroom. So that's, I think, uh, where you know, I would respond. And I, and I just wanted to, uh, John DC, if you could just clarify, and maybe this is common knowledge, uh, but that how the names of the teachers were released to the to the LA Times, this was, you. how did that happen? So um, prior to me coming to join the district, the decision was made that a public um, information request act was filed with the district and uh, teachers' um, assignments and grade levels um, uh, were deemed by the review of legal counsel to be public, which I think is generally um, understood um, around that piece. And then the second thing the Times asked for was um, uh, uh, test scores, um, of course coded so that you could never get an individual student, which was impossible to do. But you were able to see the 30 aggregate um, scores for Oscar for the last four years. Um, and um, without individual student identifiers. Um, and uh, those two data sets were requested um, and deemed uh, to be um, uh, viable and responsible for us as a party to release them. Um, the Times took them and created uh, a formula and linked them. We didn't provide that piece to it. And we've been very clear about the fact that um, I think I, I want to say I have been very clear about the fact that we live in a society with a free press, and, and thank goodness we do. And um, 
uh, and it's the Times will always have to wrestle with its responsibility issue about how it produces the information. I think good and, and troubling stuff has come out of this situation. One thing that I think is good is that an important conversation has been sparked. I think one piece of learning has been the responsibility of how you provide information to parents and people otherwise around that information. I think one of the negative things that's come out around this has been a very troubling narrowing of the focus of teacher effectiveness on but one small measure, and that's value added. And so the rest of, and by my opinion, the much larger part of the conversation has gotten a backseat around this piece. Um, so so um, a good learning. Let me follow up on that, and I, we could probably have a whole other panel on this. But do we know what is an effective teacher? <laughs> Because this is one of the issues that has been raised in the debate, that if you're going to measure effectiveness, we need to know what we're measuring, what we are looking for. And uh, let me ask you, you're, you're from UCLA, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, there's a lot of professional consensus. There's a lot of research. Um, we have a lot of, like, the national boards for professional teaching standards. We've got the California Professional Standards for Teachers. We have a lot of research studies that talk about the importance of you know, a student-centered, engaged classroom where kids are actively participating in their own learning, that teachers are not just standing up and talking, you know, although it's not a, a unidimensional picture either. There's a lot of different uh, ways to teach effectively, but I do believe there's professional consensus, and I don't think we should get tripped up uh, waiting for the holy grail of the, you know, the definition of the effective teacher. I think there's quite a lot of professional consensus about this, and there are reasonable ways to measure it. Well, uh, I'm going to follow up uh, uh, John D.C., but, I, but um, I think in the last few years, there has been, under No Child Left Behind, the focus has become almost exclusively on test scores. And I know for my kid, when he leaves the house, two kids, when they go to school every day, I want them to do well, but I also want them to be enthusiastic. I want the teacher to motivate you know, I mean, that to me is the most important thing, that they actually want to go to school. Because if they don't want to go to school, uh, then obviously nothing will be accomplished. So, so for me, uh, there's obviously so much more. You want the kid to be doing well, but it's much more than that. Um, John DC, do we know what, what is an effective teacher? Um, can I give my two cents and no child left behind first? So, I mean, I think, so um, again, with any kind of broad scale national policy around this, there was unintended consequences and intended consequences. And um, we, uh, in my opinion, um, lost a balance um, on this particular piece of legislation. Uh, so what came out of this that was very, very good is that we don't um, actually hide any longer um, whole uh, groups of youth um, who were just simply um, not visible to the system about our responsibility um, to both um, bring them to and through graduation. And, and that act, that era is over. Um, this remarkable narrowing that everything mattered on um, a single point in time versus growth over time, big problem. But luckily we have such a, a well designed and happy Congress at the moment that in the next, <laughs> they, in the next that, they can right? reauthorize it this upcoming <laughs> session. Um, don't hold your breath. Um, so I, don't, I think that there's great consensus about components that make up what a good teacher is. Um, but I think it is still very much um, a, uh, a, uh, a belief um, that I can see, I'll know it when I see it, um, piece to this, and so as with anything like that, what makes a great surgeon, and I think a surgeon is one of those things that is just so comparable, because there is a science and art to surgery, um, and, and um, there is a science and an art to, to good teaching, and I think the assessment of that has to make sure that, that we consider the measures that get to all of that. So I would agree with 100% of what my distinguished colleague um, from UCLA just said. I just want to add one piece to it, and actually how the student does as a result of all of that should be included in that as well. Um, 
I, I do have to ask, um, uh, and I'm sure all of you who read the, uh, the LA Times piece and then went one step further and read the, uh, the methodology that was used, uh, extraordinarily complex. I mean, uh, the statisticians themselves had trouble understanding it. And, and, and there are various ways to do this value-added methodology. I know the district has hired another firm to do uh, a value-added uh, analysis, but uh, they are extremely critical of the analysis that, or the methodology that was used by the LA Times. There was a fixed model versus the hierarchical linear model, mm -hmm. and I actually wrote something about this and spent a lot of time talking to statisticians. Could they explain the difference and actually, uh, they you know referred me to their you know uh, their colleagues because they couldn't do it themselves. Uh, so here you have the statisticians themselves are arguing about you know what is the best methodology. Uh, but for the public to understand, it's very hard to critique. It's actually very hard to critique some of this this methodology. Isn't that a big problem with using with using uh, uh, this this approach? It's so complicated. I think and it could be. I don't think it necessarily has to be a big problem. I think it's an obligation for the system to explain anything that it's going to use of stake and information. And um, uh, I, think there's, I, I think the issue isn't necessarily the formula. And I, I am uh, lucky enough to have some knowledge of how this works. But I think what's more important is what is the purpose of it and what are you holding, um, I think the term that we're using is so what factors are you holding constant for so that you can account for achievement? And I think that's very, very important um, around that. So its purpose is to understand how students did in the past, how they're expected to do in the future based on their past performance, and how they did over time. And it's kind of its purpose. And to provide you with some snapshot of the student's growth over time. And then to find out, so how did that student do as compared to other students, and how did that student do as compared to what you would have expected he or she to do based on the past? And if they've done markedly better, something happened. If they did markedly worse, something else happened. And if they did about as much as they would have be expected, that tells you something too. After that, the system has to put a set of value judgments on that. But to you, to you, sorry. Just, just to add about... And we, um, we're going to go to... Hold, hold your questions. We're going to get there very soon. But uh, quickly, Oscar. Yeah, then, just very uh, quickly. When we work on a day-to-day -day basis with parents, and, you know, again, we work with uh, communities of color, low-income communities, and you ask them that question, you know, what, what do you want from a teacher? And they say, I want my kid to go to college. That's what I, I mean. It becomes so simple that sometimes you to step back and say, "Well, I'm making this so much more complex." We have to see what are the outcomes that we want, right? So, that's the answer that I get when we talk about parents. I want my kid to know how to read, be, be, able, to, be able to do well in school, and to go to college. And uh, I think that's is, uh, to me it sounds very simple answer. I just want to build on that. I think that there, you know, that we can do statistical gymnastics around VAM models, but at the end of the day, it's is the children learning to go from A to B in a skill that you all care about. So I'll just tell, you know, a brief example at the school that I'm working at, we are testing uh, students' independent reading level. We're a dual language school in Spanish and English. And it's a common assessment scale based on a readers and writers workshop kind of model of teaching that we give students from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade. And so it's, it's something the whole school believes reflects the quality of teaching. And it's something that gets done twice, at least twice a year. And so it is our local version of a value-added score. And so it doesn't need to be complicated. It needs to be a good, fair assessment tied to things people care about, kept track of in ways that are meaningful. Well, there the uh, value-added work that's been done is extraordinarily complicated. So maybe that's one goal, is to simplify it so people can understand it. Our students are failing. Our children are failing. We are failing as parents. We are failing as academics, community leaders, and as school administrators. Other countries are going ahead. Their children are more successful than our children. We continue to debate this thing, have been debating it for the last 20 years. 
what's the reason for it? Why our children are failing and other children are doing great? Is there a big white elephant in the room that none of you folks want to recognize? Is there a big white elephant? And I heard something about respecting the bargaining unit's promises. Uh, you want me to make it more clear? <laughs> so, so I think if the question is, is the elephant in the room the fact that we're trapped by organized labor that's controlling the system and not allowing us to move, I think is but one issue. Other issues are, do we fundamentally believe that youth who live in circumstances in poverty and who are not white can learn at the same rate as youth who don't have those conditions? If we also want to hold and have a conversation about the fact that we as a culture believe that um, the notion <clears throat> that it, we're actually going to be okay and then make it in this competitive global economy and fund schools at 173 days of school. Um, all three of those things come into play. So we underfund, underinvest, and underexpect. And I think we hold differentiated beliefs around capacity for students. And I think that we need to find very quickly a third way forward in organized labor. I just don't think it's any one of them, but I personally think that that's at least those three. Um, and I think there's a pretty strong issue to be made around uh, at least the countries, and I know, I think you're referring to some of the countries that are substantially ahead of the United States, have a national curriculum, a national assessment. There is not this issue of, quote, local differentiated control. Um, I think those things matter pretty substantially as well. That's just some initial thoughts. And, and I thank you for raising the issue. I, I hope it's never actually something in the room that we won't talk about. It's really the gifts we have in this society. I think that, yes, there, there are issues of flexibility that schools, that we hear schools want. I, I was at, 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 a, at the school board meeting yesterday in El, El Camino High School, uh, which is a flagship uh, school of LAUSD, uh, came to the front yesterday to petition to be an independent charter. And the principal is up there from one of the best schools of the district. Traditionally, what you would see usually at a board meeting is coming from a Title I school uh, who is serving low-income communities, and then someone is requesting, uh, you know, the petition. And, and there's this, all this commotion about, you know, who is manipulating the parents, why the, the charters. But rather, the, the board recognized for their leadership for looking you know, ahead and saying there are restrictions that you have and you're looking for a way out. And they were asking about issues of restriction, uh, about things that they wanted to do at the school and funding. So I, I mean, it, people are talking about this. I mean, I am not, uh, I'm not saying anything that nobody else is talking about on a day-to-day -day label in terms of restrictions and in terms of funding, right? Uh, so I, that's what I would say. I was um, hoping that you can actually speak a little more specifically on the teacher effectiveness piece. Uh, you mentioned that there's consensus and there's professional standards on what that looks like, but for the general audience, if you can please give us some more specific elements on what that constitutes. We all say we want our students to be critical thinkers, um, but I'm just curious, how, how is the teacher workforce um, modeling critical inquiry in relation to their effectiveness? I mean, can you, I, you, can I just, one, one comment, you know, that I think you're talking about elephants in the room, there's another elephant in the room, the only thing that we're really testing kids on are English and language arts and math. Thank you. What about all the other subjects that kids take? Yeah. Um, this is such an important point, it's such a narrowed picture at the moment. Yeah. But, I, mean, I was going to say, you, you're doing some of the most thoughtful work on this issue, um, at the academy. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about this project we have. So we um, have a large federal grant at UCLA to study, um, to create a new program of teacher preparation that is based on a residency model. So students come to UCLA in, this, in the high need subject areas of math, science, special ed, and early childhood education. And they start their summer with us taking theory-rich courses about education and community and lots of important topics. And then they get paired with a mentor in, their, in, in a school that that we work with a small, we're 
working primarily with the um, small pilot schools in local district four. And we're tracking the effectiveness of our program through looking at uh, six kinds of measures of, the, of these teachers' practice. So when you say, how do we know, what would we look at? The instructional quality assessment is one I mentioned. We observe constantly, so we're in there, we're, we're using a very targeted rubric that uh, looks at things like, what is the quality of academic discourse in this room? So a good teacher should be able to encourage students to actively participate in high-quality academic discourse, as an example, right? What are the participation structures like in this room? Are, is everyone participating? Because we know students learn through participation. Um, those kinds of elements are going to be observed, right? We also uh, give student, uh, teachers, um, we, we're piloting and, and testing out an assessment of their pedagogical content knowledge and what that big term means is, how good are you at teaching mathematics, right? Not just a teacher, but there are very pointed skills at the teaching of mathematics, right? You have to be able to understand what, what kind of, what's going through a kid's head when they're trying to make sense of fractions or decimals or integers or whatever, right? So we're looking at that specific content area knowledge. We're also looking at how they participate in their faculty. Are they a professionally um, active member of their school, of the department? Do they work with their colleagues well? We're shining a light on that. Uh, we're trying to, we're going to the point where we want to keep logs of what their day looks like. Right? So how often do you do X, Y, and Z? What are the transitions in the school day look like? Because we know that a lot of time is wasted in school. We want to prepare effective teachers to use time well, to, to not lose those transitions, to not, uh, to not waste time. Those are some examples. And, and so what we're doing is taking, si there's six measures in total. One's a portfolio measure of effective teaching called the Performance Assessment for California Teachers, and, or PACT, which is uh, now in the state of California, and it's becoming a nationwide movement to assess teacher quality based on a portfolio measure. Mm. Um, and we use that too. So teachers have to submit their lesson plans, video videotaping of them teaching, their assessments, their reflections on what they could have done better, how they're going to reach different students, those kinds of things. So one of the things that's rapidly come to the fore in this whole field, which I think is, an, is but one skill I would want to this, is how often highly skilled teachers can not catch miscues of very smart students who don't understand what they try to teach and mistake that for not getting it. And so the ability to read miscues in students is a really important piece around this. Or said another way, I'm often amazed at how often really smart students didn't understand what I was trying to teach and that I didn't get that they didn't get it and I simply thought that they didn't get it as opposed to I missed the point where I could have retaught that. And trying to get a handle on that in an observation I think is, a, is, um, is we know is being associated with student achievement. I wanted to, to ask a question about, um, in my brain sort of going around, uh, about the issues with uh, the principal at the principal level. The, the young lady mentioned that um, uh, if, if some of the kids fall behind, well, the school takes responsibility from from kindergarten to 12th grade, and so at what level can one say, let's entrust the principal with responsibility to make it happen, so if, if there's a problem here or there, it's on their shoulders to, 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 to fix it over time. Well, I think there's now discussion about that, applying value-added yeah. assessments to principals as well. Is that correct? So how a student is, is, how the school is growing, huge, huge issue here. I mean, in the spirit of being very candid around this issue, um, two things. One is we, are gro we, have, we have and continue to grossly underinvest in leadership development. Um, we've got to figure out um, how to take um, some of our best and brightest teachers and encourage them to be leaders in schools, in models that we just don't have for them to see at the moment. Second of all is, if I'm a principal today, I'm gonna say, you, great, you get to hold me accountable for anything you want. As a matter of fact, my job can either be had or dismissed at your pleasure if I don't deliver results. And results look like things like parent engagement and student achievement, with one huge caveat, I must have total authority over who I fire and who I hire in my school. And second of all, and second of all is I must have total authority over how I spend my budget. There are laws, of course, 
but I have to have those choices. At the moment, neither of those are possible. So we're in a real dilemma around the autonomy um, that one gives for the accountability that one is expecting. And I would say that that is right at the level of the teacher as well. So we've got to find a way to figure that piece out. I think we've lost our way um, in this country around principle development. And um, that's going to require some very, very sharp attention very soon. The bench is remarkably thin um, and very worrisome. You do have some good examples of small autonomous schools in LA Unified, though, that are trying to do what you, what you just mentioned. I, I just wish we had a whole lot more. Yeah. We do have some examples. We do. I we do. I, I'm more. working at one. I, I, I love it. It's fantastic because and it does. It was a fight to get there. It was a fight, but it was a worthwhile fight. Yeah. In the 33 years that I was a teacher in LA Unified, one of the, the largest elephants in the room, as far as I was concerned, was the fact that the school district continues to push kids from kindergarten up until high school without stopping them when they don't do well. They fail classes, they go on to the next grade, and they go on to the next grade. When they get to the ninth grade, they're told, oh, sorry, now you have to pass everything, otherwise you don't get the credits. And by that time, the, their, their attitudes are set, and no wonder they drop out in the 10th grade, because they're so far behind. This is something the district has refused to address. They tried a few years ago and they, it fizzled. They need to keep kids behind when they don't succeed instead of letting them pile it on and pile it on until they get into high school and then it's too late. So I guess I would um, agree with your description of the problem. I might respectfully disagree with the um, treatment of the solution to the issue. I'm, I'm not um, at all convinced that keeping kids behind, if what that means is they're going to experience the very same um, opportunity to learn that they didn't in the first place. Or said another way, I think that we have to um, very, very quickly, and this is where I agree with you 100%, figure out a way to help students learn when they didn't learn the first time around that. And that definitely does not look like summer school or a repeat of the very issue where they didn't get it to begin with around that. Um, and we're not um, uh, figuring that out nearly fast enough um, around that piece. And there's very, very, very serious consequences, as you've said, which appear on or about ninth or 10th grade around that. Um, I do think that we're figuring this out at the other end of the spectrum. We are, we are watching remarkably successful techniques around transition K um, and what we're watching in, in K1, 2, and 3 around that piece. We've got to somehow figure out how that's going to look when youth are a little bit older. I thank you for raising the issue, because it's a pretty serious issue. My name is Julie Mendoza, and I'd like to take the conversation back to the indicators that we're talking about for um, evaluating teacher effectiveness. And I, and I really um, appreciate the comment that Oscar made, and also um, that's informed by Kathleen Mooney, and distinguishing between the, uh, and differentiating between parent engagement and parent involvement. And I think this is, so critical to a region like Los Angeles when you look at the percentage of low income, the illiteracy rate in this region, the, the number of English language or um, learners and the parents that have not successfully matriculated through our public education system and the immigrants that are here, when you look at the totality of that and you think about we don't have an indicator to measure the extent to which teachers effectively engage their, the, children, the parents of their students. I think we're missing a, a major, major point in opportunity because there are so many effective strategies. If you go into many private schools in this region, so I, I think there are strategies, and what are, what are we doing to really evaluate what teachers are doing in terms of constructing an, an indicator or a measure around that engagement? Are they using email? Are they texting? Are they, how are they engaging or informing parents of the, you know, how to get involved in their children's education, whether they're a kindergarten, first grade, third grade, whatever, wherever they are, but there are, are there journals going back and forth to help educate parents? Because you could be highly educated and not know how to help your child. Um, how 
more so parents who don't have those skills. So what is being done around this and is there anything that's being done? We have uh, definitely shared as part of this process and we've been working with, uh, with the uh, ad hoc committee to, to to focus on that uh, because if we look at the four buckets, again, it's you know observation, pa parents uh, satisfaction, satisfaction surveys, peer review, and, and then uh, we, we have value added. What our intent is to say, you have to have parent engagement under that observation part. What are the things that the teacher and the principal are doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, it's it said enough, and I hear this all the time, oh, I send them the newsletter, and it didn't come, is because they don't care about the education of their kids. But what, what, it, what else are you, how are you engaging? Are you communicating the, 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 in an appropriate way? So I think that we're trying to do that effort through the process, and, uh, but it, it's still a challenge about, because it is hard, you know, what are those you know, indicators that we're gonna actually measure? You know, the number of times that a teacher sends a communication to the parent, or, that, that's the challenge. But our, our limitations uh, are very real. Uh, we, we just had a project in which we were helping parents uh, on use technology and computers to be able to engage with, with, you know, with teachers. We trained them for several weeks. Uh, and we gave them, uh, actually from the California Emerging Technology Fund, they gave them free laptops to the, fam to the families. And right almost at the end of the project, we said to the teachers, well, can you give us then your emails, your work emails? They said, no, we can't because that's not part of the contract. And, and then we were saying, we've spent six months of giving you com computers, training, parent engagement. There has to be another way of understanding parent engagement rather than just sending newsletters at home, you know, that building that relationship. So I, I agree. I, I really like, I, I totally agree with your point. I want to be very self-critical about another part that you might not have mentioned. And that is, um, I think we operate under an incredibly narrow definition of what in, um, involvement looks like for parents. And so we actually think of parent involvement as falling here. So if you do, if a parent behaves like this, they're involved. And if they don't behave like that, there doesn't mean they're not involved. And I think we're coming very quickly to have to understand that parent involvement is not nearly that um, narrow around that. And the assumptions that go with falling outside of that box are very detrimental in terms of um, the biases that we can bring to um, what involvement or non-involvement means. Uh, good evening, my name is Sandra Ochoa, uh, former LAUSD teacher, current charter teacher, uh, fellow Bruin, uh, currently in USC doctorate program. Um, <laughs> um, my question is uh, regarding teacher education programs, uh, because there's a growing criticism as well, it's not just evaluating teachers once they are teachers, but also who are we accepting as teachers in the first place. So I'm just wondering in regards to the district level, parent level, you know, talking about informing parents and, you know, at the university level, K through 16, um, what is the reform happening there when a lot of the teacher preparation programs are failing to prepare the teachers in the first place? Can I just make one comment? Because um, I just finished researching this whole thing for something I wrote. Um, you know, we really want teachers to be saints, to do everything. And, you know, we've I guess having high expectations is good. But at the same time, the number of teachers are declining in California. The number, it plummeted. The number of teachers or students that signed up in teacher credentialing programs. 2002 was 75,000. 2008-9, which is the last week, of 45,000. It's gone down almost 50%. So <laughs> we want a lot more from teachers, but at the same time, Fewer people want to be teachers in California. Large, lar in large part because of the horrible economy. People, you know, every, teachers are getting laid off right now, so that's an issue in terms of who would become a teacher. But attracting students to the profession is a challenge, big challenge. I just don't think we um, hold teachers in the esteem that they, or principals, that they deserve in this country. It is not an iconic profession. And the gentleman who made the comment earlier before, in many of those countries, teachers are an iconic profession. Um, for a whole host of reasons, but somewhere in the psyche of this particular country, um, we don't have that. I, I do um, hold very serious worries about the quality of teacher preparation programs. 
Um, I'm going to say something that's maybe a bit funny and or slightly sarcastic, but I want to say something. I have a hypothesis that, that LA as a city had quite the conversation, um, some of it distressing, um, when the LA Times published you know, it, it lit a fire um, when it published the value added scores. If you want a conflagration, then the LA Times publishing the value added scores of the teachers affiliated with the university that they were prepared from. That ranking would cause quite a different set of conversations um, that would take place. And I say that not being smug about that, but I'm saying this issue of accountability can, cannot remain just so isolated and only one-sided around this issue. I mean, if it's good for some, it's good for all. And we really have to have that conversation around that piece. So I'll just end by defending teacher education. <laughs> the, okay, because the reason we're doing this new residency program that I mentioned is because the... Na the the, the face of teacher education is changing, and I think there isn't a university out there that doesn't realize this, right? Um, the uh, creation of Teach for America and a lot of these initiatives that have, were started, don't en didn't end this way, but were started with very minimal preparation, very minimal attention to the skills and, and professional qualities you needed to become a teacher, set us down a path that teacher education is not needed. You just need to be smart and, and come from an Ivy League school and you're going to be a great teacher, right? So we're now kind of catching up and saying, well, you know what? What we've learned is that you need both a very rich field experience alongside an excellent teacher in a supportive school community, but you also need to know how students learn and you need to know the, the ins and outs of pedagogical content knowledge and a lot about the sort of social context of schooling and systems and the political economy to become a good teacher in the context of a city as rich as Los Angeles. So I feel like we're entering this stage right now where, where people are much more open and critical of what kinds of experiences contribute to making a good teacher. And I would add parent engagement again, mm -hmm. you know, advocating for that. I mean, how can we expect teachers to engage parents effectively if probably they never had any type of, you know, support or, you know, teaching when they were getting ready to be teachers about what, how to do it effectively, so. Thank you so much. Thanks.